Hey everybody, welcome to Hell Boys. My name is Craig. It's a podcast. My name's do it again. Let me do it again. <laughs> well, no, why did you? I'm in purgatory. Hey everybody, talk. welcome to Hell Boys. It's a podcast within a podcast, which is the overdue podcast. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're in hell, sort of. We're in the we're afterlife. In. Or we're in like WWF in the nineties, <laughs> the Attitude or Era, we're, or of we're hell. strong bad. Oh, we might yeah. also be strong bad. <laughs> Wait, yeah, we definitely became strong bad there for a second. Hi, this is our long read project where we talk about Dante's Divine Comedy through the Se- lens of Homestar Runner, of course. Yes, lots of emails and such. Um, we're going several cantos at a time. Uh, this episode, we will be discussing the Purgatorio Cantos 23 to 33, which is the remainder of the Purgatorio. Yeah, we're going to be climbing out of Purgatory this episode. Yeah, we got a mountain Boy, is it a trip. It really <laughs> is. Um, I think we've gotten a bit... In the last few Cantos of this, I feel like we get a bit of a taste of what people are talking about when they say that uh, Paradiso is harder to, to wrap your head around. Oh, I could see that for sure. We got a lot of that. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, let's see. This is our, What happened last time? This Yeah, so this is our third Purgatory episode. Many moons ago, we talked about the actual, like, burning pits of hell stuff. Um, and we've done two Hellboys episodes on Purgatory so far. And the most recent one, we were moving up the mountain with Dante mm-hmm. and Virgil. Mm-hmm. And at each terrace, it addresses one of the seven deadly sins and right. people who like repented or are otherwise they were like sort of bad people, but like felt bad enough about it that I guess they'll get to get to heaven later. Um, they You're really going all the way back to the beginning. on Well, this no, one. I'm just like explaining <laughs> the concept. Um, but then so, oh, so purgatory. OK, on the most recent episode. Um, we hit the the terraces with pride, with envy, with wrath, with sloth, with avarice, and somewhere do along. I, do we get into gluttony, but not all the way through? Because there's definitely some gluttony stuff that we hit in this in I, this yes. selection. Yeah. I think we got introduced to a tree at the end of the last <laughs> section. Um, and we also met this will be yes kind of important but honestly not that important not as much as i thought it would be uh, we meet the virgil fanboy statius who becomes the the third beetle here he like he's climbing with them (laughs) the whole rest of the way just this guy yeah at the end of this run of cantos it's really like oh yeah and statius is there I don't know if you ever, yeah, right. if you ever played. It's very, yeah. I don't know if you ever played D and D with someone who was like only sort of into it. Like they don't, they don't do anything unless it's their turn. Like they mm-hmm. just kind of are there to take it. Like they like being part of the group, and you're glad that they're there. But they're kind of like introverted and aren't really sure what the rules are. I feel like that's Statius. Like he's very, yeah. He's not sure if he's part of the party or not, so he's keeping it like on the DL most of the time. Stacia's every time he pops up, it's very like he has big and Peggy energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, and, and to recap, we are, 
reading the Robert and Jean Hollander translation, um, which does match the like tercet structure of the original poem. We do have access to the Italian in the versions that we're reading, but I don't speak Italian. Um, and I think this actually, of the three chunks of Purgatory, Andrew, I think this is the one I found myself le- the least interested in the footnotes. I don't know why. Um, they felt like they felt the least useful, and I don't mean that as a knock against them. It felt like they were less uh, necessary, rather to like. Well, because two two things happened in this in this run is like one every time I did dive into the footnotes it seemed longer and a little more like meandering and less directly about the, the thing at hand than yeah, it was before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also, especially toward the end, you reach a point where in the front of every, um, every canto it's kind of a summary of what happens. In I like each, this like, a lot range actually. of lines. Yeah. And toward the end, you start to get to the point where the summaries become like as long almost <laughs> as what is actually going on in the text, like especially as you get more like soaked in in allegory and, and that kind of stuff. I love to get soaked in allegory. Yeah, same. So, yeah, really. <laughs> so Canto 33, Andrew, we are on the tier of gluttony. What is happening here? What's going down? Uh, we've just seen the really skinny people, right? Yeah, they're so skinny. Like, so much so, what does he say? You can see the Omo in their face? That's the phrase he uses, <laughs> right? right? The, that's the first uh, ASCII art. <laughs> because it's supposed to be like a little face. It's Like it, O-M, the lowercase O-M-O. Yeah, If okay, so this is like, I guess. But it's also a play, like a play on homo, the Latin. Yes, because you would pronounce it man, without yeah. the H anyway. You'd say Omo. And it is supposed to be your eye, the bridge of your nose as the M, and then your other eye as the other O. And apparently mm-hmm. these these dead people were so skinny from their spiritual hunger that uh, Dante could see the Omo in their face. <laughs> yeah. And this is the the things in purgatory that people have been doing some of them have seemed more punishment like than others i think yes. the ones we get here are a little more explicitly punishment like because the gluttonous are in the presence of these trees that they can't like reach and grab the fruit of and eat so it's just it's like pretty straightforward like here is a hot dog dangling on a stick and you can't eat it and you're so hungry aren't you so hungry and then for uh, lust, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, like he literally has to walk through a wall of fire. <laughs> so it's pretty, uh, yeah, pretty punishmenty. Yeah, and- which is which is interesting because earlier in this poem, they were you know when they're talking about kind of the structure of purgatory, um, he was they were talking about how it, the climb gets like easier as you go, and ma- and maybe it's the like your proximity to heaven that makes it more bearable and not like what you're actually experiencing but i was i was uh a little surprised to to see it get a little more like taxing as as he climbed i think yes and also we've talked a little bit before about how the cultural expectation of what purgatory is is way more akin to the limbo that virgil comes from which is the like kind of waiting room middle ground between being a, a candidate for heaven and a sinner 
And well, limbo's still hell in this one. Yes. Right? It's well, not so that's like when I think thing. when I think yes. of purgatory, I think of folks like floating in white space. Like there's it's just nothing. It's just a you just wait. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we get a little bit of the thing that I do remember from my European history class about purgatory. We meet a guy <laughs> named Ferezi or Ferezi, um, a friend of Dante's who is in the gluttony track. I don't remember what mm-hmm. he was <laughs> said that like it's a major. I don't really the know. The gluttony track. Yeah, I'm doing <laughs> gluttony with a minor in pride. <laughs> That sounds right. Um, the concentration and pride. And I think, I, as I recall, Dante is like surprised that he is this far up the mountain after only being dead for like a couple of years. Oh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, my my wife is super rad and she's praying for Yeah, so my good. wife is super into God. And so I got like skipped up the line because she's been praying for me. And I, I do remember that from... Uh, like the beginning of my European history class where they're talking about like the schism of the of the church in Europe and what different sects of Christianity believed. And part of that had to do with what you could do on earth to buy favor for your relatives in the afterlife and like get them out mm-hmm. of purgatory. And this seems to jive with that worldview and that version. Yeah, because I was... Yeah. I was going to ask you like... Do you think it seems to me Uh-oh. like there would be a sort of business in not like green card marriages, but like purgatory marriages where you're on your deathbed, right? You got your deathbed repentance in. Great. You're going to heaven. Mm-hmm. And then right before you die, you pay someone or whatever and you get married and then they pray for you really good and it gets you on the fast track line. I think that's probably a thing. Well, mm-hmm. I don't if. uh yeah, so this will, a, a month or so ago for Spooktober, I read that book, The Ghost Bride, which is not about uh, like European Christianity, but definitely about the practice of like marrying dead people so that they have a better afterlife. Like that seems sure. like a thing that yeah, you could do. Yeah, it seemed like, it, like the sort of like TSA <laughs> pre-check of purgatory. <laughs> Um, so he hangs out with Ferezi a little bit. He hangs out with another guy, Bonaguinta Bona de Luca, uh, who is a fan of Dante's previous work, including uh, some sort, some poem. He doesn't reference it by name, but there's another poem of Dante's that is like a like about sort of about his relationship with Beatrice that mm. apparently explains a lot of what's going on later in these cantos. Yeah, I have the name I have I believe is La Vita Nuova. Yes, the new life. And yeah. The uh the little bit from from Wikipedia here. I I like to just I I don't cling to Wikipedia for these summaries, but it does sort of help my brain sort out what I've what I've just been exposed to, and I think that'll only get more important as we go into paradise. But um apparently in the Italian he describes the uh, La Vita Nuova as uh, Dolce Stil Novo, which translates to sweet new style. Oh, yeah. Like Dante as a new type of poet. Dante, ref- Dante is writing in that sweet new style. Yes. These cantos do continue Dante's um, ongoing, hey, I'm in the afterlife and no one can believe that I'm alive. Everyone is so impressed And also, with me. like, how good I am at poems. I'm just so <laughs> like, good at poems. 
Listen, it's not me bragging. It's just the ghost people that I talk it's to. Just, I'm just I'm just relaying events to you as they happen. I have thoughts about that when we get to Beatrice later about Dante and his promise as a poet as given by God. <laughs> also, <laughs> um, we get a little flash, as I recall, of like the Virgin Mary per usual and John the Baptist as like exemplars of temperance. Like if I don't remember how much we talked about this in the last episode, but most of these sections there is at least either a vision or a dream or a painting or something where purgatory shows you the opposite of the sin so the opposite of Mm -hmm. gluttony being temperance usually the virgin mary has done this and also someone else Um, Mm -hmm. and then also you get an example of whoever is like an exemplar of the vice um, one example, aside from the people we meet, are these drunk centaurs who, like, you know, kidnapped women and caused a big war with Theseus or something because they were eating Jeez. all the food, you know, like you okay, do. Okay, great. Uh-huh. Um, Dante gets another of the, like, uh, the pea that has been etched into his forehead taken off by an angel. I don't know yep. if you remember that thing, Andrew. Yeah, it's a... Uh... You get seven of them when you start into purgatory proper. Uh, P is for pride because that's the kind of a root sin, I guess. Mm-hmm. And every mm-hmm. time you pass up another tier, one, you get your P removed, and two, it like causes an earthquake, kind of. Stick, <laughs> I think yeah. we don't get that. We don't get that here, but that's what we. I think Statius crosses over into another tier, and we get an earthquake. Maybe last episode this happened. Yes, and there's at I least think. there's yeah. at least one moment where. Dante talks to some of the sinners and is like, hey, I'm walking around with the guy who caused the earthquake. Check out that guy. He's the earthquake man. (laughs) And they're all like, Dante, we've been here for decades and decades. This is not, we are not impressed by this. Um, So as they leave the gluttony terrace, Canto 25, Andrew, is a weird one. I don't know if you marked this one i did i did mark canto 25 because canto 25 it begins with i'm trying i did pull up the uh the quote some of the quotes from this but it begins with dante being like how they be so skinny though (laughs) right like that's basically it isn't it it's yeah he's like talking to virgil and statius and he's like yo but they're dead how are they, they hungry? Yeah, like they don't. Yeah, they don't have bodies. How they be so skinny though? And then Virgil is like, "Listen, I'm gonna toss this to my our, our boy Statius." And Statius is like, "Well, allow me to expound for like 120 lines to answer this question that you have asked." And it's a tough one. Like he starts with the four humors theory about like. When we eat stuff, like it goes through a couple rounds of digestion that goes in our heart. And then I think it turns into, quote unquote, perfect blood. And then whatever's not the perfect blood becomes semen, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Quote, what is best not named. And then um, (laughs) you use that to make another person. Um, Some of that is passive and some of that is active. And then like it's not... And then basically the human is a vegetable in the womb and then they're born and they're an animal because they can't speak. And then God Mm -hmm. is like, yo, I love this thing that I made. Let me breathe life and a soul into it. 
And then mm-hmm. you live your life, and then you die, and then your soul has carried on the qualities of being attached to your body. I yeah, think I so. Got I that. so I have that. Like he, yeah. I think I think that is roughly the outline of it. And then finally, here at the end, he actually like comes out and answers the question. So it's very like it's he needs to uh, cut down on the preamble a little bit. I think, but I just didn't expect um, a full like Cartesian riff on what is. I the was song. not. Yeah. <laughs> The whole time I was just like, could you answer the question though? Like you, this is fine. You can keep doing this. But, um, so at the, at the end he says, uh, and as the air, when it is full of rain is adorned with rainbow hues, not of its making, but reflecting the brightness of another. So here the neighboring air is shaped into that form, the soul, which stays with it imprints upon it by its powers. And like the flame that imitates its fire, wherever that may shift and flicker, its new form imitates the spirit. A shade, we call it, since the insubstantial soul is visible this way, which from the same air forms organs for each sense, even that of sight. Uh, Through this we speak and through this smile, uh, thus we shed tears and make the sighs you may have heard here on the mountain. And as we feel affections or desires, the shade will change its form. And this is the cause of that which you marvel. So finally there at the end, the answer is basically... Yeah, your here your outward appearance mimics whatever you're feeling like inwardly. Well, and, and that's that's it. Like we don't need to. Go, yeah, we didn't need to go through the whole thing. And it's a little bit of like I do. I am interested in this from a like how do ghosts work perspective? Because when you get into like any fiction that has ghosts in it, um, mm-hmm. you wonder like do what. Are you a ghost of the person the moment they died? Are you a ghost of the person at their most self? Like Yeah, like I I I when I was a kid in church I I asked this question because I'm like when you go when you die and you go to heaven like what version of you goes up there? Is it like you in your prime or is it like and who defines what your prime? Do you do you appear as you want to appear? Like what's the, what's the deal? And it sounds like here, they're saying you know you would appear as you want to appear, right? Yeah, yeah. It seems like it. Or, or maybe I mean maybe eventually you get the desire to appear as you want to appear, and and here you're still appearing as, you know, external circumstances sort of dictate a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, and or maybe whoever, whatever the version of yourself that most exemplifies where you are in the afterlife like if you are in hell you are probably whoever you were when you were your most sinful when you're in purgatory similar but maybe with a whiff of who you were when you repented and then who knows what happens in paradiso because it seems like all the rules get broken up there i don't really know yeah what's going on See, this is what this is what's cool about scholarship is you can just like kind of make it up nobody can tell us we're wrong no <laughs> As long most as we of have the thinnest <laughs> slip of textual evidence. We, yeah, this is this is a valid theory. And most of the footnotes seem to say that everyone's still arguing about this. So I feel really confident yeah. <laughs> in what we are up to. We're um, just adding our voices to the conversation. So then I think it starts in Canto 26. I could be wrong, but we get into the terrace of lust, Andrew. And nice. I've been s- waiting for this one the whole time. This is the horny your terrace. this is your terrace, the horny terrace. What, you want to tell me what's going on up here? Um. So the big thing here, or at least one of the big things, is you get like what a depiction of uh, punishment for both like the homosexual lust and 
heterosexual sexual lust yes also um, sectional lust like couches yes sectional definitely. lust like you really love a couch. i love a good sectional i don't know um <laughs> yeah it's this moment there where, i there i can see that yeah. every shade of either group make haste to kiss another without stopping and is content with such brief salutation just as within their dark hued fi- files one ant will put up its face to the others perhaps to inquire of its path and fortune uh, when they have ceased their friendly greeting before they take a new step to continue each one makes an effort to outshout the rest the new ones cry Sodom and Gomorrah and the others Pacifique crawls into the cow so the bull may hasten to her lust so it's just like a swarm of people sort of rubbing on one another but not like in a sexual way They're, it's then, very chaste yes and then just like yelling as loud as they can about about how horniness is bad. Like all the different kinds of horniness is bad. Correct, correct. Um, there's some mm-hmm. scholarship in the footnotes about like if you may re- if you remember from the Inferno, and I only sort of do. Um, where don't, don't tell the don't tell them that. Don't tell the <laughs> listeners that. <laughs> um, just that the the like the lustful to the point of sin or the the folks who like were adulterers or whatever it might be, but heterosexual ones were treated very differently in the Inferno from um, gay people in Dante's book. And, and he viewed, he puts homosexuality in a different category, almost of, of one of violence, which is very different. And here you can see there are, lust is put on the same terrace and there's some scholarship about like whether or not we should read into that or whether or not it's basically the structure of the seven sins just forced Dante's hand to put all like sexual trend like what he called sexual transgressions into one plane um Mm -hmm. I don't know that you Hollander cautions against reading it as any sort of softening on Dante's part like the reader might a modern reader might want to see that and it, it probably is not there um, yeah it's just probably maybe it's just like an administrative decision that they made unfortunately it's not. yeah um and so like the sodom and gomorrah thing is there and then pacifate which is not a, a myth i'm necessarily familiar with apparently that has to do with like a woman who is it the mother of the minotaur um, yeah yeah like and built um, a thing to have sex with a bull yeah, so she was so she was so insatiable that she wanted to have sex with a bull, and so she like builds a cow with sculpture, like she builds a fake cow that she crawls into oh. to trick a bull into having sex with her, and then from that comes the Minotaur. And okay, and everything I've read about. I mean, this- listen, man, I didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> and everything about this canto is is, or the research on this canto says that. That is not a comment on bestiality. It's a comment on just how dang horny she was and that how bad that is, I guess. Which is right. and, I, I and I'm know. sure I'm I'm sure that there's nothing at all to to read into the fact that heterosexual lust is portrayed is sort of represented has a has a woman as its avatar. Like I'm yeah. sure that I'm sure there's it's, there's it has nothing to do with anything. Did you catch the moment? Where like they call Caesar a queen? Ooh, now that you, uh, yeah, now that now that you mentioned it, those who come not with us all offended the same way Caesar did, for which in triumph he her he once heard queen called out against him. It, I was Thus just they move like, on crying what? Sodom. Yeah, a par- it's a a reference to 
one story of a of a person he was with when he was younger, I think. And it, it it is interesting because we've seen Caesar treated so many different ways throughout this poem that to and this is this is Julius Julius Caesar clear, yeah, be because because a lot of times Caesar became a title most commonly it's either it's either Julius or or Augustus if they're if you're just saying Caesar but yeah to be to be accurate yeah um but like the Brutus and Cassius are like a number two and three traitors hanging out with Lucifer at the end of hell um and like Caesar is this founding force of Italy and in an exemplar of zeal earlier even in purgatory and then he- and as we've discussed a little bit earlier just if you're thinking in terms of of um poetry Virgil is a is a mm. poet who Dante reveres and he is known best for his sort of glorification of the Augustan regime and also you know the the Roman people as yeah. a you know as a as a as like a nation or as a as a collection of folks so so i was really struck that this like i don't know here is here is homosexuality as a sin and we're going to talk about this one part of caesar and use him as an example it just felt like i was very struck and t- almost taken out of the poem cuz i was so surprised as it were i don't know it was just not a thing i was expecting and not a thing hmm. i even had a frame of reference for necessarily um and it's just like a, I don't know, this whole stand, this whole canto is very odd to me with lust here. Um, he meets a few other people. He meets Guido and Arnaud, who are other poets who stand in the fire and talk mm. to him <laughs> for a while. Mm. Um, I think Guido is another romantic poet. Maybe Arnaud is also. Um, and that happens i don't remember if there's any <laughs> I, I i yeah let's um do you want to just go through the the like wall of fire yeah let's go through the wall of fire earthly paradise yeah this is okay enough lust enough of this horniness well the the moment um, where virgil is like hey dante we need to get you through this wall of fire like come on come on buddy you can do it and dante doesn't want to go through the fire and he's because like because it's a wall of fire because it's a <laughs> wall of fire and Virgil's like hey. Dante's sort of been like he hasn't been above all of the all of the punishments that have that have happened in hell or up here. And we we talked, I think, at length about how he seemed particularly to identify with the the prideful and to yes. kind of shuffle along with the people on that tier when he was when he was there. But um he's he's mostly just been an observer. He's not had to deal with much of this pain himself he's dealt with like the fear of some of the things he's seen but rarely is he affected so directly as he is when he has to walk through a wall of fire he has not had to do any of the things the as you said the only thing he's had to do in purgatory aside from climb the mountain is he had to like stoop over to talk to some of the prideful but he hasn't had to well i i i I remember i feel like i remember that just being something that he kind of instinctively starts to do a little bit when he's on that tier. I could be, I could be wrong. Oh, it's yeah. been a while since I read it and since we talked Got, about it. Yeah. But. Purgatory doesn't make him do it, but there's like a, there's a poetic, uh, like connection there of him, like bending over to sure. talk to the prideful here. He literally okay. has to do the thing 
And Virgil yeah, do the thing. Virgil's like, listen, on the other side of this fire, your lady is over here. Like, let's go, mm-hmm. buddy. Um, mm-hmm. And he finally does. So Virgil is at the at the like office team building <laughs> exercise where he has to walk <laughs> over the bed of coals. <laughs> Uh, was that? Is that Tony Rob? Who's that guy? Tony Robbins. I, don't, I have no idea. I was just making the joke and gonna move on. Well, there's like a motivational um, speaker who makes you walk on fire. He apparently sucks. I'm not sure. That it's probably there's probably a lot of them. Yeah, at this that's point. fair. Um, but so um, he gets him to do it, and then he has like a dream about Leah and well, Rachel. Let's, let's, let's get. Let's not skip the. Oh. Uh, as soon as I was in, I would have thrown myself straight into oh. molten glass to cool myself. So beyond measure was the burning there. And my sweet father, that's Virgil, to comfort me, kept speaking of Beatrice as he went, saying, even now I can almost see her eyes. And that's the main thing of it. That sounds like it'd be really hot. Have you ever seen molten glass, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. It's it's It glows. It, it glows and it's sort of liquidy. It doesn't, and it's very hot. If you've never worked with it before, it doesn't look normal. It doesn't look natural. There's, um, if you happen to live in Philadelphia and you've been to the little, uh, like Christmas village thing that they do at City Hall, there's usually a big tent where they blow like little glass animals and stuff. And sometimes someone is in there, like actually working on one. And that's probably the the most exposure I've had to molten glass. And yeah, it moves like. Nothing I I can I, I've ever seen. It's, I don't think because it's like it's alive, but not. It's it's weird. It, yeah, it's it's fiery wet sand. Like I don't really know how to deal with it. But apparently, it'd be better than being in that is better than being in the fire that Dante was in. But he emerges mm-hmm. okay. He makes it to the other side with his friends Virgil and Statius. Um, they go to nap. They take a nap on the stairs on the on Mount Purgatory. Uh, <laughs> he has a dream of Leah and Rachel, which apparently represents, you know, different forms of being a Christian and like being active or being contemplative. You know, check the footnotes. You'll learn things. Um, we're gonna move on to the next Why? part. <laughs> Why are you talking like that? Because this is what the the Leah and Rachel dream is an example of parts of the poem that are more symbolic and allegorical than active, right? And that's fair. This is and a I, thing that we I have feel struggled the least, with the yeah, most. Yeah. yeah. I feel I feel the least qualified and honestly kind of least interested yes. in talking about that that yes. angle of it because it's not the I don't know, it's more fun to talk about people crying in their butts or walking through fire or like being really hungry. It's just it's easier to to goof on, I guess. Well I, I really I actually like for how bizarre it was to to spend a whole canto on it i do appreciate that dante was like hey why are all these ghosts hungry like i really i identify with that question if i were someone in the afterlife knowing that i was going to go back to being a real person i might want to know how and why all the ghosts could be so dang hungry Mm -hmm. um the parts where he has dreams that I don't quite get all the biblical references for, I'm less interested in. So yeah. he climbs the mountain. He gets up to a big, beautiful forest, and Virgil's just like go wild. And this is the garden. This is essentially the Garden of Eden, right? Like there's the trees there and everything. It is the Garden of Eden. Yes. Yeah. 
There, there were trees in the gluttony section that some of the scholarship uh, says may or may not be allusions to the trees from the Garden of Eden, but we are now in the Garden of Eden, and it's got the straight-up tree of knowledge and all that stuff. I feel good like stuff. when you have the, the real tree in the poem, then maybe some of the other trees are just trees. Maybe they're just trees, <laughs> yes. Maybe you don't need to reference the thing that you're going to talk about pretty explicitly later. And I guess it's um, like there's some debate as to whether or not this is supposed to literally be the same one that Adam and Eve were in or if this is just supposed to represent what it is to be a person with a clean soul and where you end up for a period of time when that happens Mm -hmm. Um, Dante meets a lady and like thinks she's into him Matilda (laughs) yeah what's the deal with Matilda I mean, I can't really. It, this is more like allegory and stuff, right? So I, I, don't I think know. so. Like I, I didn't. Uh, I, she is. Maybe, did you think anything about Matilda? <laughs> okay, so he comes into this beautiful forest. He is struck by the fact that there is actual wind. He assumed that it would be like normal and and still, or maybe even supernaturally still. Uh, and then he sees this woman singing. He later finds out her name is Matilda. This kind of irrelevant what her name is. Um, and I mean, for purposes of talking about her on yes, the podcast, it's, it's nice it's to know. It's very her helpful. Name. No. Um, <laughs> and there's there's a debate as to whether or not she is based on a real woman named Matilda of Tuscany who has allegorical representations vis a vis the church in Italy, I think. Um, or she's some sort of metaphor for like Eve and unfallen eve pre-apple kind of stuff yeah yeah like it's it's it is easy to see her as a as a metaphor or allegory for uh eve because she is sitting under the, the tree yes. like she's up she's up there with the tree the biggest thing is that she's across a river from him and th- this becomes important like she is singing he's into it he thinks she's into him which is very conceited of him um and he can't get like close to her. But before Is this when the like the chariot comes swooping in? Well, the chariot's a later. Do you remember that part where there's like a a, a heaven parade? Do you remember the heaven parade that happens? Uh, boy, boy, I'm just uh really blanking on that one. <laughs> he is like hanging out with Matilda and then there is a just a what you might call it a mask M A S Q U E where a bunch of just representations of the perfect church or just like what the church could be in heaven show up. So there are 24 elders that represent the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible. There are uh, four animals with six wings as plumage, which is reference to a bunch of evangelists. There's the, they have the, four wings each yep. or... Four wings between them. They, um, what six wings? I don't. Whatever. I don't know. I honestly don't recall. Um, okay. There's a chariot that does Mr. wind up. Scholars note over yes. here doesn't know the answer to my question. <laughs> there's a chariot <laughs> that does wind up bearing Beatrice. There's a griffin that represents uh, the conjoined divinity and humanity of Christ. There's a bunch of women that 
I did I did clock the bit with when they talk about how rad the chariot is. Yeah, hit me. Um never never did Rome give joy to Africanus nor indeed Augustus with such a splendid car. Compared to it, the suns would seem but poor. The chariot of the sun, which gone astray at the pious prayer of earth, was quite consumed in Job's mysterious justice. So comparing it to the uh the chariot that uh Scipio Africanus would have gotten once he had conquered uh, Hannibal and destroyed Carthage. Um, the one that Augustus would have gotten when, you know, when he conquered all of his uh, adversaries and, and started the Roman Empire as we know it. And then also the chariot of Helios, the sun god. Like, yeah. that's how rad this chariot is. Is better than all those chariots. <laughs> Get out of here with your little scrub chariots, Augustus. You're such a classics major, Andrew. Get out of here with your busted ride, Scipio Africanus. <laughs> the thing that struck me was following the chariot. Then came three ladies dancing in a round near the right wheel. One so flaming red she hardly would be noticed in a fire. Another seemed as though her flesh and bones were made of emerald, while the third seemed white as his new fallen snow. Now, so there's three ladies, red, green, and white. And apparently they rep- got collect them all. <laughs> and apparently they represent like virtues of like love and hope and faith or something. But in my head, they were just the Italian flag, which only dates back to 1789. So I'm Ooh, not really maybe, sure. Maybe they picked those colors because of Virgil. It's possible. I'm, it's it's possible as long as we don't look it up and why it was actually chosen that way. Connect- for as long as we remain, as long as we remain ignorant. Anything is possible. Correct the, connect the dots, everyone. Don't correct yeah, the dots. Connect them. That's my. That's the kind of the driving motto and philosophy behind overdue. <laughs> is like if you don't know it, it's then not untrue. It's a big sandbox, and you just play in it. So there's like this whole parade <laughs> in the Garden of Eden, and it bo- it all builds to. Dante confronting Beatrice or seeing Beatrice again. What's mm-hmm. that moment like, Andrew? What happens? It's pretty big. Um, yeah, it's it's a honestly he is more. I feel like seeing Beatrice like registers more for him than seeing literally Satan was in the last right. yes. in the last book because. When he gets to Satan, it's kind of, you know, it's a description of what he's up to, but they don't like chat a lot. Mm-mm. I don't think, as Mm-mm. I recall, they just kind of blow by him and then climb out through his butt. Yes, true. Um, but yeah, there's this there's this whole run basically where Beatrice is sort of tearing into Dante a little bit for his sins and stuff. Right. Yeah. She is upset with him um, for like straying away from the path of god uh i guess if we had read i did not realize that dante's other poems were like prequels to the commedia where he like like, it's i don't the uh la nova what's the what's the name of it la nuovo vita vita nuovo or something yeah that's the the hobbit to the to the the, lord of the uh, rings divine comedies lord of the rings yeah where he is like in love with beatrice they have a good time and she spends their time together kind of bringing him closer to god through his love for her he is learning to love god she dies 
and he just abandons that. And yeah, well, and if you want to talk, if you want to talk about scholars' debate, there is uh oh some debate. There's debate about literally everything, but there's some debate as to whether these are even supposed to be the same Beatrices. Uh oh, maybe it maybe it's two Beatrices. It's hard to say. But anyway, go on with that. That seems very conceited of Dante. We're going to treat him like we're yeah, we're going to treat him like the same. The idea that person. he would have two women named Beatrice that loved him that much seems very conceited. I think it must be one person. I mean, <laughs> if there's one adjective you had to pick to describe Dante though, based on these poems. That's true. What's the one you would pick? I would conceited would be in my top 3. It would be in my top 3. Um mm-hmm. I don't want to think about the other two because i'm really stuck and conceited um <laughs> she really lays into him in a like hey hey jerk hey hey godless jerks hey, you, stop hey, crying idiot yeah the, my best is when she goes full-on tom hanks like league of their own like there's no crying in the garden of eden <laughs> and just starts yelling at him for crying so much <laughs> and she's like you know being real mad at him for straying from god and straying from the path and he turns to his boy Virgil, and what happens, Andrew? Oh, you ready for Virgil, this? But but Virgil had departed, leaving us bereft. Virgil, sweetest of fathers, Virgil to whom I gave myself for my salvation, and not all our ancient mother lost could save my cheeks washed in the dew from being stained again with tears. Because <sighs> so uh, we actually we get the last words of Virgil quite a bit earlier like more like closer to the wall of fire right um so th- this is actually back uh with the Rachel and Leah thing that's the last thing that Virgil says to Dante even though after this he goes full statious and gets pretty quiet <laughs> um <laughs> The temporal fire and the eternal, you have seen, my son, and now come to a place in which, unaided, I can see no farther. I have brought you here with intellect and skill. From now on, take your pleasure as your guide. You are free of the steep way, free of the narrow. Look at the sun shining before you. Look at the fresh grasses, flowers, and trees, which here the earth produces of itself. You may sit down or move among these until the fair eyes come rejoicing, which weeping bid me come to you. No longer wait for word or sign from me. Your will is free, upright, and sound. Not to act as it chooses, un- as it chooses is, un- is unworthy. Man, time come me again, maybe. <laughs> Not to act as it chooses is unworthy. Over yourself, I crown and meter you. Oh yes, so he, a- he's like, oh, you're ready to go. You're ready to go on to the next phase. Yeah. Do you remember? I mean, I I don't recall. I f- I feel like the relationship between Virgil and Dante is. A little more, especially in Inferno, like Virgil seems a little more concerned with just like getting on with it. And and uh, Dante wants to stop and gawk at everything. And, and Virgil has to constantly be like, hey, come on, man. Can we just can we I'm trying to make a schedule here. Like, can we just yeah, do this? Virgil seemed um, like he would like to leave hell pretty quickly. And Dante has a lot of questions. And in yeah. this in this section, there's a bit more of. Dante has questions and Virgil doesn't have all the answers and he's not like he's not fully embracing of dawdling but he is less inclined to be like yo Dante let's hurry up. Well and also the the relationship just seems a little more affectionate like they yeah. both in, in these in this run of cantos at least start using like father and son terminology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They um, and and Virgil uses it whereas I think 
certainly towards the end. I think Dante, end. Dante using it is like, okay, bud, yeah. <laughs> can you get over yourself? But then <laughs> then we get a, a my son in here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's and the last thing he says. And then he just kind of like disappears. Yeah. Like Beatrice yells at him and there's a section where da- where the poet Dante is like, and then I looked at him like a scared kid would look at his mom, assuming that she would be there and he was not. And I was sad. Yeah. And we don't like dwell very long on the whatever not emotional at all. impact of that because because we're in the presence of Beatrice and this is this is a big deal. Like we've been alluding to her this entire time. Correct. Um, um but still, he's a, you know he's he's a cool poet. He was Dante's guide, and because he is, like you mentioned earlier, in this in this limbo place, he is ineligible, correct, to get into heaven. Whatever his deeds might have been on earth in his own time, yep, like he can't go any further. This is as far as he can go, and he he can make it all the way through all the trials, but he can't beat the last level and get into heaven because he doesn't have the codes. He does not have the codes. He ran out of lives. Um. And and so there there are angels there with Beatrice who are like into Dante as a reclamation project, as a like <laughs> we may we're gonna make him better than he is. And Beatrice is like, listen, we can't celebrate who he's going to be because he sucks right now. <laughs> like, listen, he sucks so much that I had to cry so hard that God said we could bring him to hell. And let him climb purgatory and still let him go be alive. That's how bad my boyfriend sucks. Like, yeah, like this is very much like you don't get credit for resolving that you are going to do something. Correct. I don't think. You, yeah. you need to do the you need to do the thing. Beatrice speaks a lot of truth in these last two cantos. I think mm-hmm. um, she does. Someone not Beatrice drags Dante through the river Letha. Uh, which is how he forgets his past sins. Um, and then later he is like, he drinks from another river that reminds him of what it is to be like a good Christian boy, um, which is how he's going to move on. But before that, we get that whole chariot sequence. The, the like the chariot in the tree with the griffin and the snake and the fox and the dragon when the this is where we also are talking about like the the some of these animals have like horns like oxen and some of them have like one horn like poking out of their head. I guess so. The last <laughs> two cantos are really buck wild and I'm not really sure what they all mean to be perfectly frank. They talk to a griffin. I understand that the griffin is supposed to represent Christ because Christ is both divine and a man and the griffin is multiple creatures at once. Cool, 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 cool. Tight, tight, tight. Um, the griffin, like, jams the chariot into a tree, into the tree of knowledge, I presume, that Beatrice is hanging out under. Mo- Dante falls asleep, and when he wakes up, most of the parade has gone back to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, an eagle and a fox and a dragon attack the chariot until it turns into a harlot who is then carried into the woods by a giant. Okay. Okay. This is this is a kind of a struck me funny actually. Then I saw flinging itself into the very cradle of the triumphal car, a fox so wasted, <laughs> it seemed deprived of any nourishment. 
It's like, man, listen, Mr. Fox, if you're going to drink like that, you got to eat something. You can't drink like that on an empty stomach. Don't get, ugh, man, don't get so wasted. Um, a little bit, a little bit before that, I also clocked like another reference to like from, we get, we got this a few times from, from Virgil, I think, and from Dante himself, but here we get from Beatrice, a, a reference to the fact that he is expected i guess to go back and and write of these things that he's seen here for a time yeah yeah here for a time you shall be a woodsman and then forever a citizen with me of that rome where christ himself is roman therefore to serve the world that lives so ill keep your eyes upon the chariot and write down what now you see here once you have gone back and he that, that this is the interesting moment where another character tells him hey you have to go back to earth and like blog about all this crap where because like he has been uh, in particular in purgatory i think more so than even than in hell in purgatory in purgatory he has been saying to people he said it to the gluttons they were like i don't know if i want to talk to you and he's like listen i will write about you in my super important blog just please tell me what happened to you and why you're here and now beatrice is like listen you actually have to do that because that is the reason that god said all of this could happen yeah, like Be- Beatrice is very against Dante trying to pay all these people in exposure. Like yeah. he, she really wants, <laughs> she really wants some hard, some good, cold hard prayers in response. <laughs> like yes, she wants she wants the world to know about all this stuff. Yes, um, was it who is the actress that was in the post? I feel like who was that? Street? Yeah, I feel like Beatrice could be played you, by You Mer- forgot Meryl Streep? I was making a goof because how could you forget Meryl Streep? Well, my they- brain kept saying Helen Mirren and I knew that that was wrong and I, I knew it was actually someone else. Um, I think Meryl Streep could be a good Beatrice is all I'm saying. Um, but yeah, she's very like, hey, listen, Dante, you got to do something about this with the time that you're going to spend. What I am unclear about, and this kind of gets us to the end of this section, Andrew, is like, Mm-hmm. I don't know why they need him to go any further or what he's supposed to gain or what's going to be there when he gets there. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what we find out next, I guess. But it really seems like if the well, I get I if I had to hypothesize based on what we've heard and what we've been talking about. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um like it, it it sounds like Dante himself needs to be purified and needs to do more work before he's like worthy of going back and, and relaying all these events. So, I mean, maybe maybe it's the case in Paradiso that he's supposed to go back and talk some about what he's seen. But it sounds to me like, OK, now we've shown you all this stuff and now we need to make you a vessel like worthy of conveying all this and maybe that's what happens I think, in paradise. Yeah, let me read the last three tercets. If reader I had more ample space to write, I should sing at least in part the sweetness of the drink that never would have sated me, but since all the sheets made ready for the second canticle are full, the curb of art lets me proceed no farther. From those most holy waters I came away remade as our new plants renewed with new sprung leaves pure and prepared to rise up to the stars and that's the end of purgatorio i like that he is like hey i don't i'm out of time i'm done i don't have any more tape on this particular recording so i'm gonna hit the pause button 
And I'll see you in heaven, everybody. Well, let's just say he hits the eject button. He's like, well, I, I uh, in this poem that I'm writing that I'm in full control of, I don't got any more. I don't got any more space. It, Bye, everybody. Bye. It is it is kind of fascinating that this like seven or eight year eight hundred year old thing is self referential in that way. I do think that that is a cool thing that I am surprised by. Yeah, because you don't like in Homer. You never get, and this is part of the Homeric question, I guess, is you don't see the author in the work. He doesn't stop to be like, Not at all. And I, and I, Homer, (laughs) told you this cool thing that Odysseus did. (laughs) And I was really good at it, too. Well, and even in, in Homer, there is less allegory. And that's the thing that we've been struggling with, I think, the entire read on this one. This section... Even if I don't get all, or even if I can't process the allegory quickly without more scholarship, these ten or eleven cantos at least felt like I could, like, oh, that's something I could. The symbolism was cleaner, even if I didn't know what all the symbolism meant. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas there's some stuff in the earth, in the middle of Purgatory, where I was like, I don't even know what we're talking about. Like, why are we yeah. here? I guess I am hoping that our lack of background in biblical allegory does not make the paradiso section of hellboys completely unlistenable as an entertainment project (laughs) um i hope maybe maybe our next thing needs to be you know welcome to bible thumpers this is our (laughs) podcast where we read the bible a book at a time every month i don't know if we could let there be light everyone maybe maybe (laughs) jesus wept you've put it out in the world that was your first mistake pods of christ in red letter next time we will tackle the first what probably the first seven or eight cantos of paradiso Paradiso. yeah um which will give us four episodes to talk about paradiso uh with the last one being kind of a like what the heck did we talk about the whole time yeah and then uh, like we did with uh Stop Homer time. We're going to get Dante in the studio. We're going to interview Heck him yeah. and just talk, talk to him about what he did. Can't wait to talk to this guy. Yeah. What do we say at the end of every uh, Hellboys episode, Andrew? But Andrew and Craig had departed, leaving you bereft. Andrew and Craig, sweetest of fathers, Andrew and Craig, to whom you give yourself for your salvation. And not all your ancient mother lost could save your cheeks washed in the dew from being stained again with tears. Oh, Hellboys. <laughs> <laughs>
mm-hmm. using the Hollander translation. Um, last we left our hero, question mark, Andrew. He our, had, if not our hero, then at least our, uh, like, transcriptionist. Yes, <laughs> our conceited transcriptionist, Dante, uh, <laughs> had climbed out of hell through Satan's butt, up right. Mount Purgatory, jumped through a wall of fire, mm-hmm. ended up in the garden, in a Garden of Eden, maybe not the Garden of Eden, but a Garden of Eden. How many of those do we think they are? It gets in, mm, I think it gets Is it just kind the- of a thing where they've got the space, they, they want to make more green space, like public green space on yes. Mount Purgatory. They've and rezoned so they just set Purgatory. Up little <laughs> gardens of Eden everywhere. <laughs> I, I think that gets, I say it that way because it gets into the thing we've talked about before on this show where like version what version of this afterlife is like specific to dante what content uh-huh. is only he able to get um and then uh now we are in space question mark yeah we're in heaven which means space i didn't know we were going to become space boys as part of this <laughs> podcast yeah so like we're going to do the first nine cantos of the Paradiso, um, and then the subsequent episodes, I think, will be like eight cantos apiece until we get to the end. Um, all of these editions of the comedy, Andrew, have had some sort of translator's note up front. Anything you want to talk about to kind of set the stage as we go into this thing? Yeah, I mean, Hollander talks about, and this is something, I don't remember if we talked about it in our like very first Hellboys, like before we started our descent into Hell, but um, the first two are sort of of a piece, um, Inferno and, and Purgatorio, and then Paradiso's kind of off doing its own thing. And, <laughs> and like we talked about last time, you do definitely get, especially once you cross through that wall of fire and get to the Garden of Eden, you get, I think, a taste of what paradiso is gonna be like at the very end of purgatorio yes but um but yeah it's just it's very it's very different and the translator's note where it's not devoted to minutiae as hollander (laughs) is so often uh interested in delving into it is it is mostly about how paradiso is different um the language and style of this part of the poem are in many respects dramatically different from those to which the reader has become accustomed in the previous canticles Yes, he says um, there is a finished quality to the first two canticles that Paradiso sometimes does not have um, something else he says. And then uh, Paradiso is certainly the most challenging part of the poem, but may also be the most rewarding for those who give themselves to it and let it do its work on them. And um, so so to talk a little bit about how it's different before we dive into it, because yeah. it's like our, our past Hellboys episodes have been very plot heavy because there's just been a lot going on. Like every every time you get to a new circle, there's a whole new bunch of punishments to talk about. And <laughs> yes. that's that's driven most of our conversation. <laughs> but as uh, Hollander points out, the third Cantica is essentially different from the first two because of the sharp reduction in the amount of narrative it deploys. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot, a lot of, of dialogue. It. A lot of it. I guess a lot of monologue, I would say. It's not always dialogue. It's people talking at Dante. Yeah, so usually in the in the hell and purgatory sections, Dante would just kind of grab people by their flaming shoulders and just be like, who are you? 
tell or me. Or folks what, would be like, hey, you look like a good Italian. Let me talk to you about Florence for like that's 60 true. lines. Tell me yeah. about, tell my sister that I'm down here frying. Go back and do it. <laughs> um, and this has like elements of that. But whenever Dante starts talking to someone, he usually asks them some sort of question about the nature of God and being a good Christian or some sort of metaphysical conceit or he like looks confused at something and then his old pal Beatrice reads his mind and starts answering right, and his questions for him. Yeah, like a lot of what Dante is worried about in this section at least is he he seems to be running up against the uh the um apparent contradictions I guess mm, in mm-hmm. Christianity like a big one they talk about is um so okay, man sinned, like Adam sinned, and it was so the thing that he did was so bad that like there are two options to be forgiven for it. Either you do something so good that it makes up for it, which man can't possibly do, or God forgives you. And then he sends Jesus down and Jesus dies. But if God like couldn't God have just forgiven people without killing his son? Yeah, couldn't God <laughs> and have it just dies like wiped the... out all of our spiritual loan debt instead yeah, of like right. making it worse? Uh-huh. Hmm. Um but but yeah, we'll talk about that more when it uh when it comes up. But yeah, just just kind of diving into some of the uh contradictions and, and trying to and Beatrice, of course, is like, Oh, you sweet summer child, let me explain <laughs> all of this to you. And this is, remind me, Andrew, we know this poem is all from the 1500s, late 1400s. Uh, uh, yes. Is that right? Yes. I'm like kind of vamping because I am also trying to look it up at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think it's early 1500s. Yeah, that's, uh, no. Uh, oh, 1308 no. and oh. completed in 1320, a year before his death in 1321. Oh, dang. <laughs> so you, <laughs> just off by a couple hundred years, okay. it's not a big deal. Here's why I know that I'm off, <laughs> because I'm also looking at notes on the geo and heliocentric universes. Sure. And I was reading about Copernicus, who was around in the 1500s, because I wanted to get to that, because... Uh, it's worth thinking about both the how do how do we relate to God questions that Dante keeps asking, and also the nature of the universe as written in you know this D and D setting that Dante's playing in. Um, yeah, because the the what is retained from past books is the structure where you are climbing tiers yes, of things, yes. and every tier has a different people on it and they're there for a specific reason so the the edition we have uh, i don't know how it's represented in the ebook andrew but i have a helpful map of dante's paradise yeah i've got that too and i even have a link that says click here for a larger version of this image <laughs> oh good um and I, the saturn look like it has a ladder on it it does it does <laughs> have a literal okay. ladder on it which is pretty cool um, no rings but it does have a ladder <laughs> and so it starts with earth and so the Earth is the center of the universe in this model. It's based on the model from Ptolemy, though I think there are other seven heaven systems that predate him all over the yeah. ancient world. Um, and Earth is where purgatory is. Like Yes. There, it is a mountain somewhere on Earth. Yes. Um, then you go up to the moon, then to Mercury, then to Venus, mm-hmm. then to the sun. I'm interested to find out more about that later. That, sure. <laughs> Then you like a bit of a miscalculation, but okay. To Mars, to Jupiter, to Saturn, 
then and then we get out of what we would call the solar system and you get to the starry sphere mm-hmm. then the crystalline sphere mm-hmm. and then what we call empyrean and then, and then once you've flown that far you get the platinum yes. sphere <laughs> it's true it's and what, that gives you access to the heaven lounge and the best health care it's true <laughs> um and empyrean is like that's where god and all the people in heaven actually are that's like actual heaven so it's also it's split up into this into this planet-based or star-based <laughs> heavenly body-based. Yeah, they understood them as stars. Structure, yeah, yeah. Um, for Dante's benefit, like we are to understand that he has, you know, he has ascended. He has done some of the hard work of getting up into heaven, like going through hell and hell and through purgatory. Um, but he's still just a guy, and so they do have to put on a bit of a show for his benefit. Like, yes. So everybody in heaven is not being blessed equally, Truth. which we will talk about as we go through each planet. But they're all like, oh, yeah, no, God, you got me. I deserve it. <laughs> and them being that th- everybody's still blessed and them being happy with their slightly lesser state of blessedness is part of the harmony of heaven. And the only way to represent to Dante's pea brain that not everybody is blessed the same is to set it up as a tier system, like what we've been working through the last two books. Yes. It's very wild to me that the whole thing is a show for Dante. I mean, I guess the spheres do... I mean, they, invite, they invited him up here. That's you don't true. invite people over to your house and then like not clean up. You know? <laughs> fair i baked this cake but you can't have any it's Mm. eight tiers and then god's at the top um so he did like he is working from existing cosmology which i wanted to make sure that i had a handle on like like contemporary cosmology yeah it's based on the ptolemaic ptolemaic system apparently there were other people like pushing heliocentric ish systems before copernicus Mm-hmm. Um, a guy in ancient Greece did it, but no one agreed with him, and I guess they burned his manuscript because we don't have it. Um, okay. Some guys in medieval in the medieval uh, Muslim world had already been writing about it in the 11th and 12th century. We get Tycho Brahe who had a system where I guess the planets orbited the sun, but the sun still orbited Earth. <laughs> very complicated. Um, that's that is that is geocentrism (laughs) putting the putting the centrism in geocentrism (laughs) trying to satisfy both sides and the big thing that all of these systems uh kind of miss that we don't get until kepler starts working with copernicus's model is that the planets actually have elliptical orbits not these concentric circles that dante understands them to be and then galileo starts observing that stuff in telescopes and the church gets mad so that's like Three apparently when I was wrong earlier. That's three hundred years after Dante. He's working with the old notes. Yeah, um, I still pr- I appreciate all these people who are kind of trying to move the Overton window on <laughs> heliocentrism. Yeah, like, what would people accept? Well, Earth still has to be the best, but maybe <laughs> I want there to be an option for you to believe that the Earth revolves around yes. the sun. Well, and there's also, but if you, but if you have your old beliefs. Then you can keep them. It's <laughs> if you want. Them. I also like the flat Earth version where the Earth is flat, but there's a dome on top that the stars go around. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like that, uh, like the Liberty Science Center. It is in, like in that. New Jersey. Yeah. yeah, 
Um, so the beginning of this story, let's get into the story poem as as proper, I suppose. Please. Dante is like sailing into space heaven with Beatrice. It's very important that we know that he is doing something that no one's ever done before. Mm-hmm. Um, he does like invoke the muses, like he needs help from God and the gods to like tell yeah, still, the story still right. Drawing a lot from classical literature, despite the fact that we're really diving into the thing that sort of tore that whole system down. Like yes. he's talking about um, Apollo and yeah. wanting to impress Apollo at one point. And then like Beatrice is just staring into the sun, just looking at it. Because she can't, because she's immortal. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're not supposed to look at an eclipse, and Beatrice is like, suck it. I'm looking at this sun. <laughs> And I think Dante gets to for a little bit, but he can't the whole way. Um, and then she just kind of like rags on him for not understanding God. This like starts a perennial back and forth between the two of them where he like starts expressing doubts. And she's like, listen, puny human, I will unveil. Later she says, I will reshape your mind. That's a literal thing she says to him in Canto 2. Where she, yeah, and I was—I don't—I don't remember if I read this in um, the translator's note or if it was some of the other like research I was doing. But Beatrice has been set up as sort of a love interest for Dante through the first yes. two books, mostly. And then once we actually meet her, she is so far above him and like different from him mm-hmm. that you could never possibly like. Surely he has a crush on her, and she has never paid him the time of day. <laughs> Yeah, he's just been waxing poetic about her. He's like, well, I guess I'm <laughs> going to save this guy. Um, we get an introduction in the first canto to this, like, they talk about lightning for a while. They talk about bows and arrows. They talk about, like, your your nature as a human or your nature as any, as anything, I think, really, is to want to be nearer to God. Mm-hmm. And so you will keep ascending through this space world to get close to him um and like the earthly temptations that draw you into sin are things that pull your arrow off course mm-hmm. i think is like the central idea that they explore um and and yeah so the moon um uh, which is the first place we are going or flying to the moon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um it represents inconstancy. Oh, you're right. Yes. Uh-huh. And part of that is because of its sort of mottled appearance, like the and the waxing and the, the spots waning, yeah, the craters and yeah, and the waxing and waning. So it, it represents sort of fickle people. Um, a lot of these folks were like vow breakers, like they meant well, but they still made vows that were broken. Um, but they were sometimes they were at least the people the examples we get were like people whose vows were broken by somebody else like there there there's a picarda who we meet who took a vow like never to have sex she's gonna be a nun yeah she's gonna be a nun and then somebody like forcibly removed her from the nunnery (laughs) i guess get thee out of a nunnery now and then married her and then well it's like i know you didn't 
I know it's not your fault, but you still broke your vow, so you get into sucker heaven, <laughs> like yeah, the slum heaven. There is a thing the where, excerpts of heaven where out they on the talk moon. about how like she could have maybe done something about it, and the fact that she didn't just martyr herself instantly means that she. It, yeah, it's extremely victim blaming. Yeah, and so like Cantos two and three, we are hanging out in literally inside the moon. <laughs> We are inside the moon. Love it. Um, and Dante warns Give us. that moon cheese. He warns us early. Turn back if you would see your shores again. Do not set forth upon the deep for losing sight of me. You would be lost. Listen, reader. If you can't hang with big boys like me, get out now. <laughs> if you can't take the moon heat, then get out of the moon kitchen. Um. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Beatrice, like, smacks Dante's intellect down about not understanding why the moon has spots. Did you understand this, Andrew? Did you understand this moon stuff when he's like, listen. I read, like, a more plain English description (laughs) of it later. He's like, the moon is, why is the moon the way it is if everything God made is perfect? And Beatrice is like, you idiot. You dumb idiot. Why do you, why don't you guess, stupid, and guess why the moon has spots on it? And Dante's like, I guess it must be like denser where the spots are. And she's like, okay, you stupid moron baby. <laughs> and I, then I don't remember what she actually says. I just remember, I mainly remember the condescending part. <laughs> she says something to the effect of all of the spheres are like equal. They're all like <sighs> something about if they were imperfect in themselves like that would be some sort of flaw of god this is when she says i shall now reshape your intellect thus deprived with a light so vibrant that your mind will quiver at the sight um each differentiated power makes a different alloy with each precious body that it quickens with which even as does life in you it binds from the joyous nature whence it springs the mingled potency shines through its star as joy shines in the living pupil of an eye um from this power is derived the difference seen from light to light and not from dense and rare. This is the formative principle that creates according to its worth the dark and bright. According to its worth seems to be doing work there as we start to meet folks like Picardo who are like, yeah, I'm happy to be in the moon part because that's what I deserve to have. Mm-hmm. That's the the prevailing thing we learned from the moon people. <laughs> <laughs> when in Canto 3 a bunch of moon faces show up to smile at Dante and yeah we meet Picarda who is the nun that you talked about we meet Constance who similarly ironically given her name uh, like broke Ooh, nice. a vow of chastity and Dante's lesson that he's supposed to learn there is that there's no rat race in heaven like no one's trying to get closer to God yeah Everyone's cool with where they are, even though, as we learn in Canto 4, they don't actually live in the moon. They're just coming to the moon to say hi to Dante, to teach him a lesson. Right, I mean, it's just a visual, it's a visual representation to help him understand. Um, I do appreciate the part where the two, like, moon ladies just, like, tell their story and then just start singing the Ave Maria in his face and peace out. <laughs> A lot of people end conversations with Dante by singing in his face while they fly away, being yeah, some right. And then a lot of people introduce themselves to Dante <laughs> by like trying to burn his retinas out by shining so bright. It's pretty good. Um, so there's a lot of, in these first. Um, 
what's this like the first five ish cantos we're dealing with the moon and inconstancy and vows and stuff because we, we meet the people who we meet and we talk to them for a little bit and then the rest of it is Dante like struggling to get questions out and Beatrice sort of finishing his like reading his face and answering his questions for him that's cantos four and five yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the moon the moon thing is part of that, and then there's a lot more discussion of um vows and, and free like, will. Yeah. Uh you yeah, and f- so free will is like the the great gift that, that God gave man, and so the best thing that man can do is like willfully like surrender that will in the service of God. Like it's not enough to make up for original sin because man can't do that, but that's why it's such a big deal when you when you go back on your word. Yes, yes. Um, and she says, uh, you want to know if a vow left unfulfilled may be redeemed by some exchange that then secures the soul from challenge. Um, and then the greatest gift God in his largesse gave to creation, the most attuned to his goodness, and that he accounts most dear was the freedom of will. All creatures possessed of intellect, all of them and they alone were, were and are so endowed. Um and she talks about basically the only the only time when it's okay to break a vow is if like the church tells you it's okay and then you go and do something better. Yes. Or if the new vow that you want to do is like so much better than the first one mm-hmm. that it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it um, it also gets into some of the and some of the free will stuff, which is also part of the vows because you're like going against what you told God you'd do is like this notion of absolute will and like your busted human will that guards mm-hmm. that guides your actions and like the reason that Picard is here is cuz like her absolute will which is given from God is fine but her busted human nature meant that she didn't run away when they tried to marry her to that dude I guess which is weird yeah that she didn't try hard enough yeah. to not break um, her vow I suppose and and that tension is so like I did send you Andrew this article, um, Paradise Lost by Robert Baird. It's a Slate article from 2007. Why doesn't anyone read Dante's Paradiso? Um, <laughs> and he talks a lot about the like drama of the first two third, the, you know, the first two volumes is like the drama of conflict, the drama of what you did wrong. Um, yeah, the intro the intro of that piece is like yeah inferno's the one everyone knows purgatorio is the one that you like if you're cool yeah and you've, like and you've, actu- and you've actually read them <laughs> and then paradiso is the one we don't talk about yes he says the real drama of the canticle is literally cosmic it develops out of the tension between a perfect heaven above and a very imperfect world here below so everything we've been talking about is like Dante living this through question asking where he's like, but it's perfect up here, but these people aren't perfect and they're here. Huh? (laughs) And people like, there is a little hand waving going on. There's a little bit of like, you can never really know God. And that's the point. And Mm -hmm. God kind of set this up, but he also didn't literally build all of it. It's a little bit later when they're talking about what God did and didn't make. And apparently God made the angels like the spheres he made man's body and mind man's body and mind and like himself and one of everything else he'd subcontracted out he did he did and dante's like well why does like stuff break and why do things die essentially 
And because man was given immortality, but that was taken away sort of when Adam sinned. Um, but then the resurrection is a new form of immortality. Uh, and Beatrice is like, well, listen, like all that stuff was subcontracted. Like that's not God's work. All the perfect <laughs> yeah, stuff comes God's up fault. here in the end. Um, and the other it's stuff very clearly in the contract that you <laughs> yes. signed that God is under no <laughs> obligation to provide this for you. Um, and, and we'll move on with the, I think it's like the pivotal moment where we get into the free will conversation is also Dante's questioning of like, Oh, people are like sent to these or represented by these different spheres in heaven. Does that mean that their nature is determined by God or is like, is free will an illusion is where he gets to. And then like, then we get into the discourse on, why god gave us free will in the first place um, sure. but that's where like not the i, the, I it's, it's an astrology that isn't like oh i'm a virgo maybe something cool happened to me it's like oh i'm a virgo <laughs> i only do virgo things and like that should excuse me <laughs> from doing dumb virgo things because i'm a virgo um and dante does is seems to be like skirting around that as best he can mm. um Candos, uh, so we're done on the we're done on the moon. We yeah. shoot on up to Venus, and no, we I go just, to Mercury I, first. I, we go to Mercury. Oh, yeah, first. right. Mercury, Mercury. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and Dante, I just highlighted a passage of Dante being Dante. He is still himself. <laughs> Merely consider, reader, if what I here begin went on no farther, how keen would be your anguished craving to know more. But you shall see for yourself what great desire I felt to hear about their state from them as soon as they appeared to me. Okay, listen. You're so lucky to have me here, gentle reader. We have 700. If I'm going to be made to feel like an idiot by angels. You have to feel like an idiot for not being a cool poet like me. We do have seven years of hindsight to be like, L calm down, dude. But I, I <laughs> guess there is something and there's, you know, Hollander hints at it. The, the Slate article hints at it like... Dante knew, or at least had, knew is a strong word, Dante thought that what he was doing was super important and that it was like he was engaging with big theological questions while also taking undertaking this giant artistic project. Like you have to have a certain amount of uh, hubris, let's say. Yeah, like self-confidence. And self-confidence to, yeah. to, and ego to kind of go into that. So like I am not surprised that it is also in the voice of the work. For him to like <laughs> kick in the door and be like, this is important. Hey, this is rad and I want you to look at it. <laughs> so we meet. Well, Mercury is interesting because Mercury is like the planet of ambition and stuff. Interesting that we're talking uh -huh. about it. So who yeah. do we meet, Andrew? I was interested to get your take on this canto with your like classics background if you had any thoughts. Yeah, so the the main guy is Justinian and um, who is most he? of my, uh, he is a Roman emperor from around like the uh, the early 500s, okay, uh, AD, and he is so he's not, he's not the one who converted the empire to Christianity. That's Constantine, like 200 years before. Mm -hmm. um, Justinian was an so at, at some point in the Roman Empire's history, it was split into two halves: the Western Empire, uh, which actually contained Rome, and then the Eastern Empire, which became later the Byzantine Empire, and then the Ottoman Empire. Um, and then a bunch of footstools. Yeah, but the the Western Empire fell apart, obviously, before the Eastern one did, because the Eastern one went on to like become different entities that <laughs> sure. survived yes. through to like the 20th century. Um, but Justinian was an Eastern Empire who undertook this project to like reclaim 
the Western half of the empire. And he wasn't all successful, but he did succeed in large part. And um, he also, I think, is known for uh, kind of going through Rome's law books and kind of cutting out all the crap that was in there, like <laughs> yes. contradictory stuff okay. and stuff that no longer applied. So he, it's a, it's a moment of rejuvenation for an empire that's kind of fading and prime yeah. at okay. this point. Um, yeah, so we so we meet him. He's the guy. And he gives Dante like a history lesson basically, which it took just me a quick rundown of Rome, yeah. <laughs> from the death of Pallas, which I don't know when that was, a long time ago from like before the founding of Rome as we know it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um through a whole bunch of kings, through the Republic fighting Hannibal, through Julius Caesar whose death and whose actions and death may have just paved the empire's way for Christ to come along. So good job for him. Um, type. Yeah, it's sort of portrayed as like it, 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 the Roman empire was this project that, that, you know, conquered a lot of land. Like there were a lot of people who were in the empire and then the empire converted to Christianity. And so all those people were like kind of subject to that too. Yes. I think is kind of the thrust of that. Yes. And, like, um, and then, if- and then also, like oh man so this is complicated okay so <laughs> G- during the reign of tiberius jesus gets killed yeah and the romans do a just thing in punishing the jews for killing jesus by destroying jerusalem <laughs> during the jewish wars this is all what we spend canto 7 talking about yep uh-huh yeah um but it was also a just thing for god to kill jesus through right. the so it was yeah so Jews. Jesus is mortal and immortal and so through killing him you're punishing mortals because you're killing his mortal half and so it's cool it's cool that his son died but it's not cool that you killed the that you hurt the godly part but it's, of it yeah it's still it's still bad that you killed the god like it <laughs> needed to happen but still it's bad and so everybody ends up unhappy. I think. Yeah, it's like first we get this big. I think we get this big long history lesson of Rome from Justinian that essentially sets up Rome as like a big project that God put in motion to try and fix some stuff. Well, and we've we've talked a couple times about how maybe even as an as an Italian, this is where this is coming from. But yeah, Dante yeah. is very. Uh, he's a big Romophile, I guess. <laughs> sure. Yes. Like he's big into Rome. Yes. Um and, and I think like into like well into Dante's life. I think I think you would be getting like the Holy Roman Empire in there. Like I think there there were a bunch of well, it's pre- projects that tried to like claim the lineage of the Roman Empire as as we sort of drift yeah. through the, the Dark Ages into the Renaissance. Yes. Um so, and I think this all sets up Justinian as an expert on why Rome is good and why God is good and why the things he did are good. And then in Canto 7, yeah, it's like Adam put mankind into an abyss of error for all time is the phrase <laughs> that they used. And no, I did not really think about this. No one was allowed to go to heaven before Jesus died, Andrew. Once yeah. Adam did that, heaven was I closed. Did we... Didn't we talk about this in Inferno? I don't think I knew that it was like all those those folks closed, though. Yeah, it makes sense that we talked about how everyone pre Jesus was like doesn't get to go to heaven, but I didn't think about it in the sense that like because Adam turned away from God, literally God was like, "House is closed, you're kicked out." 
Yeah. You're done. I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. <laughs> You're still on my health insurance, but you can't live here. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so then Dante is asking Justinian and Beatrice these questions about why God does the things he does. Um, we get the thing we alluded to earlier where men needed atonement and God could either forgive them or they could do something in return, but they couldn't do anything because there's nothing that good, so he killed his With own. his limitations, man could never offer satisfaction, for he could not descend as deep into humility by latter-day obedience as by disobeying he had thought to rise. Um, and this is the reason for which he was denied the power of getting sa- giving satisfaction on his own. Thus, it was necessary that God, in his own ways, restore man to the fullness of his life by the one way, that is, or by both of them. Yep. So God had to do what he had to do. And we are all still, we're not quite paying the price, but we have a lot of work to do. More bountiful was God when he gave himself, enabling man to rise again, than if in his soul clemency he had simply pardoned. Oh. So God God sacrifices something, too, in this, and that's how you know he's serious about making sure this whole humanity thing plays out okay. This thing that he started, I mean, listen... (laughs) He he created us. The the subcontractor angels did not create us, so it's on him, I think. Um, Canto 8, we go to Venus. Dante spends a confusing few pages talking about why it's called Venus and why all the why it's all about lovers and Cupid and stuff. I kind of mm. lost the thread there, but I mean v- Venus, you know, Venus the goddess, Venus the planet. Yeah. Lovers. That's it. You know, makes sense he to just, me. He just spent a long time talking about it is all. I just um, feel like you don't need to <laughs> feel like you don't need to spell it out that much. A bunch of uh dancing lights show up singing the Hosanna and then he talks oh, for a long Hosanna. time to an unnamed king of France mm-hmm. who everything I've read about this part of the book, everyone's like, Oh yeah, Charles Martel. Yeah, King Charles, that guy. The poem never names him. How are we to know that the foot? I guess from context we would know if we were in Isn't the 1300s, Charles Martel, a Game of Thrones guy. I just kept reading it as Charles Martinet, and then I just was imagining oh, Mario <laughs> saying all the things that he was saying. It's a me. I'm in heaven. How can good sons come from bad? Oh, how can bad sons come from good fathers? Let's go, um, Mamma Mia! That's a one spicy offspring. <laughs> Um, so, and that's where like Charlie's like, Hey, uh, I was a good dude, but my sons could have been better than me. And there are bad people that got in the way. And Dante's like, how come like good guys can have bad kids and vice versa? Like why did good kids have to deal with what bad dads do? And I think what Martell tells him is like, God's playing the long game. Like it'll all work out in the end. Yeah, like there's there's this whole thing about um like diversity being important. Yes, yes. And so you don't just want every child to be a copy of their parent. Yes. But often, you know, often parents are trying to make their kids be that. And so there's this whole conversation which actually I didn't love about <laughs> um how man has like an innate nature that needs to be uh, needs to be observed. Mm, mm-hmm. um, nature once begotten would always follow a course like that of its begetters if divine providence did not intervene. Now what was behind you is before you, but that you know, 
but that you may know how much it is you please me. I want you to wear this corollary as your cloak. Always if nature meets a fate unsuited to it, like any kind of seed out of its native soil, it comes to a bad end. And if the world below paid more attention to the foundation nature lays and built on that, it would be peopled well. But no, you force into religion one born to wear the sword and make a king of one more fit for sermons so that your path departs from the true way. It's basically po- folks should stick to what they're good at. Well, and that would be great. Yeah. But the world don't work that way. Yeah. And I think there's I think there's a good and bad implication there. I think. I think there's the bad a, implication is like you are one thing. It just it made me maybe because we had we'd talked about this relatively recently, but just like talking about like the caste system yes. in India and like untouchables and that kind of thing like that. That, of course, is the bad like you were born into this, and so that's where you'd stay. Yeah, and it gets it could get dressed up as a like you know the evil version of socialism, where it's like to each according to his ability, and you don't get any more. Right. Um, you can never change. I think the most charitable reading of it is Char- Charles Charlie talking, and he's like Chuck, Chuck, his friend. <laughs> he's like, listen, people choose a character class when they're born. And they would like to be the things that they're good at. And if our competing interests turn them away from the gifts God gave them, then we're only going to create further strife. So it's like it is. It's really important to play your class. Yeah. He, he mentions a bunch of people, um, Solon and Xerxes and Melchizedek. And I guess Daedalus. <laughs> uh, and when Hollander's talking about it in the footnote, he mentions like lawmakers, warriors, priests, inventors, like it was a and d game, which is why it's on my mind. Um, you, I would, I'd have to go through all the episodes of Hellboys, but I feel like D&D is giving both of us, but you in particular, a good rubric for understanding <laughs> some of the things that are happening in this. Happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, it's interesting that you read the the negative version of this passage in it first andrew i read the positive reading of it first boy if that's not uh pretty (laughs) that's not a pretty (laughs) accurate read of what the podcast is then i don't know what it is yeah but i also think there are like understandable contextual factors in terms of you it's that's the thing you and i can both understand how each other got to the thing but it doesn't change that we got to opposite (laughs) versions of the thing first yeah, I don't know. I was just like, okay, mostly because I'm I'm anybody that Dante comes into contact with in Paradiso, I expect them to know more and be better than hit than he is. So if they're telling <laughs> him something, I assume it's positive. If he says something, I assume it's stupid. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> um, chat, we'll round this out with Canto Nine. He meets. Yeah, Canto Nine kind of feels like the start of another arc that we don't get very far into. So we'll probably end up talking about it more again. We meet some lovers. Episode. Yeah, meet Kanitza, um, who and Falco and right? Falco, yes. Um, and Kanitza was a lover, like had a lot of lovers apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she's turned toward the love of God now. Cool, 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 cool. Um, and she has. Folko some... was a cool blue bird who flew a space airplane with his good friends and beat Andros. Yes, he was. He was also mm-hmm. a brilliant French lover from Marseille. Same. They're, yeah, two things can be true. <laughs> um, and he introduces Dante to someone named Rahab, who is apparently in the book of Joshua. 
implications that she was a sex worker, but like predated Christ's death and then did so didn't get to go to heaven, but then so was sent to hell. And then when Christ died, God was like, you're good. You helped some, you helped my people out. Come on up. Um, and it closes with Falco being like, hey, Dante, your city sucks. It was founded by Lucifer and all the priests are corrupt. But don't worry. God's going to take care of God's going to sort them out. <laughs> it, again, it wouldn't be Dante without the self-aggrandizement. And it would not be Dante without just like just slamming on Florence just a t- teeny bit. Yeah. Yeah, man. When Justinian's talking to him and Justinian gives the full rundown of like Rome, good and bad. He gets to the end. He's like, also, yeah, those gulfs and ghibellines that are from your time. Yeah, they suck because they either oppose the empire or bastardize it. They're bad, too. Just like you think, Dante. (laughs) Just Uh like you know to be true. (laughs) I think I like this more talking to you about it than I like it while reading it. I like it. I like it more talking about it than reading it because talking about it kind of forces my brain to focus on it. Like, yes, I I don't know. It was hard reading this big, like hundred line speech from somebody about like some weird twisty logic about why it was okay all around that Jesus got killed. It's like, I don't know. Like I've, I've got a baby, like we're playing Pokemon go again. Like there's just a lot of stuff on my mind that's floating around in there. And I, I would frequently find myself getting to a Canto, like the end of one and being like, I could not possibly tell you what happened in the last 80 lines. I'm going to go back and start again yes. uh-huh. and try to pay better attention this time. But there, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm I'm not going to lie. Um, there is a pretty good kind of blow by blow summary on schmoop.com that I read after I read the yes. actual text that sort of helped me make sense of things. Um, There's some stuff in, in a lot of the summaries that I've been reading through as I've done that for most of our time together on this one, because it's like the thing about Kanitsa being like uh, a, having like many lovers or something is literally a, a dependent clause where she says overcome by this star's splendor, which I guess if you'd studied the poem for a hundred years, you'd know all the people she slept with. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I didn't, I kind of just missed that in my like attempt to grasp literal events that were happening. So yeah, like uh, through, through Hellboys, I'd always had sort of the Wikipedia, like high level summary open, but just to give shape to the discussion. So I like kind of remembered the order that things happened in, but this yeah. is the first one where I actually needed to read like the explain it to me like I'm five version yes. of what happened after I read it. Cause I was just, I was just having more trouble getting into it because there's, it's less about like weird biker demons <laughs> and oil blood lakes and crying in your butt. People get just like got less chained of that. It's got up less of that stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting and tough to try and like, read theological argument through tercets of poetry that Mm -hmm. that and that i think is also uh there's something in the translator's note about how like him putting this in verse was also a big deal because usually you would not read theological discourse in verse it would be in prose um Mm -hmm. and would be way drier than this is even though this is like it's not dry it's just tough it's it's tough it's hard read um, I did want, I forgot to talk about it in the intro, 
Um, but on the subject of the Italy stuff we were just talking mm, about, there's mm-hmm. a bit in the translator note that's very catty. Uh oh. Which I'm very, it's very messy and I'm very here for it. Um, he says, uh, one off repeated view is that after we leave Purgatorio behind, the poem reveals no further interest in the political affairs of the world below, which is simply untrue. <laughs> Uh, Paradiso, however, is frequently portrayed either as having left such worldly concerns behind or as if they are seen as present, downplaying their importance. Such a view is countered by even casual attention to the text. (laughs) And I've got that's my favorite line that I've read in this thing so far. (laughs) Yeah, because I don't know. He's just like casually dismissing an entire read of this poem. (laughs) Basically, like, well, you must not have read it right because I, I, I'm getting it over here. Yeah, something about making the entirety of the Roman Empire a project by God is that's not <laughs> political at all. Um, all right, well, that's this episode of Hellboys. Next time we're doing Cantos, I guess ten through seventeen, if my math is right. Um, something like that. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for joining us. If you are not getting these episodes early, you can do that at patreon.com slash overdue pod. You can tell us what you think by sending us an email at overdue pod at gmail.com and Facebook and Twitter at overdue pod. Um, Andrew, some folks on the main feed will probably hear this outro. So if they want to know more about the show, where should they go? OverduePodcast.com is our website. Up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, our Patreon project, which you already probably know about, patreon.com slash OverduePod. Give us some money. Get these episodes early. Andrew, you got to tell us what we say at the end of every episode of Hellboys. Every, every single episode of, of Hellboys. Yeah, what do you say? Merely consider, reader. If what I hear begin went on no further, how keen would be your anguish craving to know more? There it is. That's the ending.